Hi, this is the Organisational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organisational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organisational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Uh, welcome back. Um, I'm David Wilkinson, the editor of the Oxford Review, and today we've got Cora Latrue, who's um, uh, done some really interesting papers around scientific myths and how they managed to kind of grow and, and invade scientific thinking and papers. So welcome, Cora. Do you just want to um, start off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and a bit of your kind of journey and background that's kind of led you to this place in terms of the research? Yeah, um, I'm an assistant professor at the uh, Inland Norway University of Applied Sciences uh, at campus Lillehammer. Um, <clears throat> here I mainly teach um, a course called Examen Philosophicum, which is a 10 ECTS uh, introductory course in philosophy of science and uh, critical thinking. It's kind of a compulsory part of several bachelor degrees. And I quite recently, a couple of months ago, I defended my thesis in, at the University of Bergen in the philosophy of science. Uh, this, this doctorate is not, not strictly a PhD, it's, it's called the Doctor Philos, and it's kind of an independent study without a supervisor, and I'm not part of any PhD program. So I, I informally refer, it to, to refer to it as a DIY PhD, really. <laughs> It's a PhD and the research yeah. is good. I've read it. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, so this thesis was about scientific myths and particularly the learning pyramid, which is the kind of uh, very central, very my main, main example of, of, of scientific myths, scientific myths in those discussions. Yes, yeah, and and that, congratulations on your. Um, your defense um, of the thesis. As I say, um, I've read the thesis. It's very good, very interesting. Um, so, you know, you've kind of over the last few years, kind of since 2012, from what I can gather, is you've, you've published a, a series of papers around um, kind of scientific myths and how they've kind of pervaded some scientific thinking but other people's thinking as well and the first one that i picked up on and we'll we'll come back to this um a little bit later was the paper that's entitled a rebuttal of ntl's institute's learning pyramid um but also the ones that that followed on from there the affirmative citation bias and scientific myth debunking uh, a three-in-one case study um excavating the origins of learning pyramid myths and then obviously your, your, your thesis that you were talking about. So do you just want to give us an overview of what kind of led to this stream of research? Yeah, it's, it, the project goes way back really, maybe 12 years. Um, it started when uh, the, the, the local chief uh, librarian Sigbjörn Hannes and I uh, were presented with this learning pyramid model. And we found it's a bit strange that what many weird things about it. Like, it seems like you remembered maybe 10%, 20% if you attended a lecture. But if you watch the same lecture on the videotape, you apparently remember 40, 50% of the same material. And that's kind of, it didn't seem quite consistent. And 
the numbers were too even. It was kind of strange, but it seems seemed to be accepted knowledge. So we at first we okay, maybe this, maybe so, and it kind of corresponded to how we thought about teaching. And we were kind of frustrated doing lectures. How much do you actually remember from this? And uh, so okay, maybe this is so. But we started to investigate, and uh, when we this was about. 2008, 2000, yeah, 2008, and we started to investigate this learning pyramid, and we didn't find any research about it. So, and we tried to. What we did find was that several used them, but and some criticized it. And uh, we we made a paper in we published a paper in 2009 in in the Norwegian publication, where we kind of just did a review about. What do we know about this learning pyramids and how often are they or, or how common are they in the Norwegian literature on education? Mm. Um, so that was kind of just, this is what we know, this is how common it is. And uh, Sigmund and I, we, we had a good, very good co collaboration and we proceeded to work with, with this issue. And, we, we kind of increased the range of it. So we started looking at the international diffusion of this model. So, uh, and um, that was in 2016, we published a paper in the Journal of Curriculum Studies. Uh, we, rep we reported 418 uh, peer-reviewed journals publishing some version of the learning pyramid. Mm. And uh, now consider that there is maybe 70 million papers published by, by now. 418 doesn't sound that impressive, really. Uh, it is too many, but not dramatically, I would say. But what we consider maybe more important is that also several field-specific encyclopedia articles featured some version of the learning pyramid. And when they when knowledge gain this kind of level in publication, when they come into the encyclopedias, they are like, this is, this is called consensus. This is what we know about these things. And this paper took some time. It took several years to publish or to write and to get it published because this learning pyramid is, it is it's just basically a blanket term. It, it's, it's, it's an umbrella term for a lot of different models. And they don't, some of them don't really look like each other. So we had to establish the history and kind of genealogy, genealogy of, of the learning pyramids to be able to say, this is a version of the pyramid, this is a version of the, and that, that is not. So this was a very complex, this time consuming piece of work and uh, a lot of time went into that. And uh, following that, we, kind of worked on about, we, we carry this kind of uh, geneal genealogy, this historical perspective yes. uh, a bit further. And doing kind of this archeology, span we dug our way back to also look, looking, for, looking for the origin of this, this learning pyramids. Also was a quest to find what research was there available that could support its model. Mm. So we kind of, dug our way back and back and back and the model seems to change consistent consequently and uh, 
we ended up in the 1850s. Oh. That's where we found the first identifiable version of, of the learning pyramid. And uh, from what we can gather, that is not the first one. Or sometimes, maybe 18, late 1850s, they were talking about this as common knowledge, as this is, this is what we used to say, this is common, this is common expression, this is, yeah. So it is probably decades older than 1850. Mm -hmm. But uh, from there, we weren't able to get hold of any more digitalized, um, digitized papers. So we had to kind of just put stop, stop there. But for us, it was adequate because we could now say that there is no scientific basis for the learning pyramid because simply psychology, psychologists started studying retention years later, decades later. So, uh, and, and uh, if, if, if the learning pyramid was somehow based on, on research, we had to, we would have to rewrite the entire history of, of, of philosophy of, of psychology, basically. So we were content that, okay, there is no research for this. <clears throat> so that was the first finding that we can establish there that this was basically um, folk psychology hearsay or, or what is it called? Um, just a, there's an expression, yeah, a Max. saying, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that's, that's the one finding. And the other finding is the quite paradoxical discovery. This model is actually 160 years old. And we have found it in academic publishing or inside, inside academic publishing and outside for, for all these years. And usually science or research is able to remove false or unsubstantiated claims. But of course, we, this would take some time, but at least 160 years, that seems, seems a bit much. So um, from, from primarily the 2016 and 2018 papers, I wrote, uh, I, I used these two papers as a kind of a case to try to develop some kind of conceptual theoretical work on top of this and to use the learning permit case as, as a case of a, of a scientific myth and try to develop a kind of a concept and a, a scientific myth concept and some explanation as to how, how, how scientific myths persist, how they, how they diffuse, how they persist uh, debunking, etc. So that was that kind of ended to be ended up being my my thesis basically yeah yeah um we'll we'll come back to that at, 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 in a second um let me the, the story of how i came across you actually is kind of paradoxical to all of this um i, I was actually so my um my masters and um uh, uh, doctorate are in education so um do a lot of work around learning obviously um and and the whole th thing around expert and novice learners and how they learn differently and and various other bits and pieces like that so um i i actually happened to be reading um a study 
uh, I don't know whether you can hear that, it's rain. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, we've had a lot of thunder and lightning. Um, so I was reading a paper that was published this year called Developing Management Effectiveness. I don't know why academics use this kind of language, the nexus between teaching and coaching, right? So in there, they reference your work, right? And they reference the paper, um, the, the, the rebuttal of NTL's Institute's Learning Pyramid paper that you published some time ago, right? But they use that paper as evidence to support the Learning Pyramid, saying that you have scientifically proved the pyramid. And I was like, what? This is exactly the opposite of what this guy's saying. I hadn't met you at that point. And I was thinking, how can they actually publish this? And I, like, I was, and I'm still a bit stunned about it, like that they would actually do that. I don't know what your, have you seen that paper? Uh, I was aware, uh, I, there's, there's, it is not often cited that this paper is not often cited and, uh, <laughs> By the time I checked it, I kind of assumed that it would be citing it incorrectly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this it is, it is definitely not uncommon. <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah. so can you just, um, what I'm interested in really is, you know, kind of what thoughts you're coming up with is, is how come these myths not only kind of pervade scientific thinking, but actually get to a stage where people are using it in the completely opposite direction so they're using other people's research in a completely opposite direction than, than it, it was actually intended for. I'm, you know, I, I don't understand how that can happen. I've, I think the most the easiest explanation is that they haven't read the paper. That is, that is my guess. Yep. Uh, it, is, it is quite clear on how I feel <laughs> about the learning pyramid. So I, I don't think it's ambiguous in any way. Um, but uh, so that's kind of the first part of the explanation, perhaps they, they haven't read it. And most interesting, interesting is perhaps asking, so why didn't they read it? And there's several, several plausible explanations for that. And one thing is that the learning pyramids and several of all the myths that I have looked at are kind of intuitive. They kind of sound right. They got, they're, they're truthy. Uh, they, 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 they kind of agree with our experience, our informal experience. We can easily think of several examples of how this is correct. Mm. Uh, like the idea of the learning pyramid that you learn more efficiently by teaching others. Of course, when I stand teaching uh, like, uh, for instance, the cave metaphor of Plato. And suddenly I have a realization that, okay, this is probably what he meant. As I stand there, I get this kind of epiphany. And when I kind of, when I look, to look back at how I have worked with Plato, how I've studied Plato and how I taught him, this epiphany stands out more clear to me in my memory than all the tedious work reading this kind of this old English, this bad Norwegian uh, or English translations or trying to get grips with the Greek or uh, yeah, all the all lectures you've been yeah. to. <laughs> all, all the lectures I've followed myself, all these are kind of, they're way back, they aren't memorable, but this epiphany is, so it kind of easily lends itself to this narrative that, okay, this is how it works. So, 
and this is this is one thing and also the learning pyramid is very malleable it's it's it has it is plastic it is kind of you can shape it any way you you like so if your preference is doing digital teaching if you if you're into MOOCs if you're into using iPads there's always room to put in these things somewhere high up the hierarchy in the learning pyramid uh, if you think that practicing if you think that uh, discussion groups are essential these also can be stressed in in the model AE. we i remember we joked about uh i don't remember uh, i i don't i don't i'm not sure if you had this in english but uh in sunday schools in the olden days they had this kind of flanellograph it's kind of uh, fabrics with figures that you put oh, on yes. a flat surface yes to tell biblical stories mm. i mean you kind of joke okay these these people are using this model to argue for the efficiency of specific uh, technologies we could even find an example of flannelograph and we've actually did that <laughs> they have found they put the flannelograph into the into the version of the learning pyramid so whatever whatever idea you want to present you can use the learning pyramid to do that so it's kind of a confirmation bias and the the learning pyramid's ambiguous yeah. enough to allow for that to occur it is it is and uh, several of yeah it kind of corresponds also to ideas about uh, activating students of course these are healthy ideas as but they, they are kind of quite diffuse quite vague and they kind of speak to all these ideas about how we ought to teach in some way and uh, okay so, so so that's kind that's those kind of explanations goes uh, about the particularities of the learning pyramid and similar myths and there's also other other reasons like you don't have time you're stressed you need to publish things okay and also there can be minor breaches like i think i have read this paper i i do believe i read this paper but i actually didn't <clears throat> and my EndNote base has 3,000 papers. And it's very easily to imagine that I have read it and, I've, and I know what's in that paper, so I don't have to read it again. But actually, I've just put it in my EndNote and I haven't actually read it. So that is, that is very easily done, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, uh, fallibility of memory, <laughs> definitely. No. So, 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 you, so make, you make about hundreds of claims. In, if you publish several papers, you make hundreds of claims, you make hundreds, hundreds of references, hundreds of citations. And okay, errors are bound to happen. And when these small errors accumulate, you mm. kind of get this, this phenomenon, these this scientific myths. Yes, and it's largely because the information is coming at us from lots of different places. Yeah. And, and if we don't engage, and it's what you're talking about, what you're teaching, if you don't engage in critical thinking and start going, hang on a minute, so a video of the lecture is more impactful than the lecture and yeah. has greater retention, how can that be? When you start to think like that, then it starts to unravel. Definitely, and and that's based on a whole series of other knowledge constructs and things like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. One one of the problems with all of this is that 
you know, it kind of, it can erode people's faith in science when people start to realize that these things actually aren't based on anything. Um, and you know, I, I, I did a thing on LinkedIn yesterday about kind of these neuro myths that pervade a lot of people's thinking, you know, around kind of hemispherical do dominance, this idea of a right and left brain and, oh. you know, being more logical and more creative, you know, it's just not true. Um, but it's, it's spawned the whole industry just about. Um, and and it, it kind of catches people's imagination, I think. So are, are there any other findings from, from your research about why these things end up being disseminated um, so widely? Uh, well, I, ha there is, I have an, there's a paper in my thesis that is not yet published. I need to work on it a bit further. But I kind of identify minor epistemic breaches, minor epistemic flaws, uh, like they sometimes read uh, read critical critics, they, uh, they refer to critic, but they sometimes don't engage with it. They kind of just, but this, this idea is controversial and they leave it there. They don't engage with the debate mm -hmm. itself. So they kind of just go through the emotions like, uh, here's a learning pyramid, it says so and so. It is controversial, but it seems to accord with how we, how we think, how we, and, it's, and also it is very commonly used. So they kind of just, kind of just uh, take it up, lift it up, shove, shove it and, and put it aside as, as an issue. Um, and there's several, several uh, problems around citations, uh, this basically is, I, I tried to make a kind of list of this kind of small, small breaches of, of, uh, of, uh, of acceptable research practices. Mm -hmm. and, and they all act as kind of cognitive nudges. Um, and and that, again, that, I, I think what you're talking about, about the lack of engagement is a lack of critical thinking. We, it's, and it's that because it takes effort to critically think. Yeah, you know, and, and it's quite kind of easy also to, to consider okay this this model is widely published so it is authoritative uh who am i to question these all these researchers there are hundreds of researchers publishing models mm. how can they be wrong yeah uh, yeah so maybe i also lack a confidence to say hang mm. on a minute <laughs> yes i've got a voice in this yeah. And, uh, yes, I, and I think a lack of confidence, particularly with people, you know, if you see professors and, 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 and esteemed academics publishing, it can be quite intimidating, particularly if you're just starting out, a PhD student or um, somebody who's not even an academic and they read it, it's got to be true. Um, and that, I think that, that gets going. There was an interesting, and I, I think this also has something to do with this, there was a paper that I, I, I was reading late last year that was looking at the lag between research being published and it actually getting into practice. So the, the, the original paper I was looking at was actually looking at the lag in clinical practice in medicine. Um, and they, they say on average, on average, it takes about 17 years for things in research to end up in practice in hospitals and medicine things like that um, there was another one published about mbas showing that it takes about 13 years from publication to ideas from the publication end up ending up on 
MBA programs. So there's this kind of lag. And, and what's interesting is what happens in that lag, how all of these, you know, how, what is it that creates the conditions where those pieces of research are, are published? Because so, there's an enormous amount of publication going on. Um, I estimate roughly about 105,000 papers published every month, new papers every month which is, yeah, I know, it's incredible. And, um, but what, what's happening in that time period and what's creating the conditions where um, individuals become conscious of a stream of thinking, a stream of research in order to then bring it into practice. And I think that's part of the whole kind of idea of little nudges, little, just little things that are kind of accumulating over time. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get this kind of this huge lag, because some of the some of the research actually takes quite a mind shift. You've really got to go. Hang on a minute. <laughs> I've now got to reconsider everything here, yeah. rather than it just kind of fitting in in a stream of of, of kind of thinking. And I, th I think that's that that could be part of the story as well, which is interesting. So, yeah, go on. There's probably some kind of also institutional hinders to this because they have to find the way into textbooks, they have to find their way into the curricula, they have to find it to yeah. So and by by the time these students get to their workplaces, there are cultures, established cultures that they they will have to fight. So I guess I'm not surprised that 17 years is uh, is the time. Yes. Yeah. Describe yeah. Definitely, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not either. Um, what, what, what I'm particularly interested in is what goes on in people's heads over that period of time to make it acceptable or to make it important or whatever happens to be. Um, so, you know, if you were to pull out a, a, a takeaway or a couple of takeaways for practitioners from this, who will be listening to this, so people in organisations and things like that about scientific research, what would they be? I, uh, I guess be aware of simplistic answers to complex questions and sweeping generalizations of human behavior. Um, because if you find an idea intuitive, neat, and comes very easily to mind, chances are they have also come very easily to the mind of the researchers. So uh, if maybe, maybe that is, that is the, that's a kind of a, general rule of thumb I can give. Because the myths I have looking at, have been looked at are this kind of very general uh, kind of vague descriptions of human behavior without consideration of context of social, of social, uh, social context or, or time of or person, personalities, culture or, or anything this kind of one size fits all into the clear idea about how people work, how they, how they function, how we learn, how we behave, how we respond. Uh, so yeah, these kind of, these kind of ideas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that, I guess that would be, be, be the most relevant for, 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 for the practitioners at least. Yeah, I, th I think that's really good advice. Definitely, definitely. Okay, um, thank you very much, Cora. I really appreciate your time um, you. uh, and the work that you're doing. Um, I, I think it's I think it's it's really important work. Um, is, is there some way that um, if people want to kind of follow you, uh, follow your research, or contact you, that they can? 
Uh, yeah, they can contact me via email. Um, and uh, I'll put that on the website. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I'm not. I don't have a huge presence in on the internet. So, but I have a ResearchGate page. So, and uh, several, some of my papers are available there. And uh, if they contact me via ResearchGate, I can send them copies, or I, or via, e or by email, of course. Yeah, we'll put your link to the uh, ResearchGate profile for you. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Cora. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Really nice uh, making contact with you at last. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Take care and good luck for, uh, well, for the new term, with the, oh, thank you. the, the teaching, um, with the, um, all of the issues that we're facing with coronavirus. Um, and um, hopefully we'll talk again some other time. Yeah, maybe. You take care. Thanks. Take care. Thank you Bye -bye. for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's Oxford hyphen or dash review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. <laughs> <laughs>